0: Grace, mercy, and peace to you from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's an interesting twist in our gospel lesson this morning. In the lesson Jesus gives while eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors, we find the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. Both items that are lost, the sheep and the coin, are found, and there is merrymaking and feasting, and possibly similar to what you have done this Independence Day weekend. While the parables tell of a shepherd and a widow that rejoice with friends and neighbors, Jesus states, of the found sheep, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." And of the lost coin being found, just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God God over one sinner who repents. The twist, being found equates or is equal to repentance. Luke 15, 7 tells us that repentance denotes not only the knowledge of sin, but also faith in the forgiveness of sins. As soon as a person believes the remission of his sins, he comes by means of this faith into personal possession of the remission of sins. In other words, he is justified before God. This is subjective justification. In these parables, the sheep is seen as doing nothing to be found. Sheep are dumb. When scared, they simply freeze and become motionless or lie down. They do not go looking for the flock or attempt to retrace their steps back to familiar territory. As for the coin, well, it is a coin. It will lie under the front seat of the car for months until you need a few more pieces of change for a soda, a cup of coffee, ice cream, and you go searching. And coins, even if made from precious metal, don't jump up in piles of laundry, making it look as though someone left a frog in their pocket. Both must be found, and in both instances, the lost things are simply found due to no action on their part. But then, being found is equated to repentance by Jesus. How does that work? Repentance is my work, right? Jesus may find me, but I do the repenting around here. It may be the only good thing I can do, and I must do something to be saved, uh, found, Right? Wrong. This was the message that Jesus was sending to the Pharisees and scribes who were questioning his choice of dinner partners. They grumbled. This man, no inkling of acknowledgement of him being God, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Be assured, Jesus comes for sinners. And that is a good thing. Because he comes for you and me. The Pharisees and the scribes had no need for Jesus. They had the the repentance and almsgiving thing down. They gave thanks. They were not like other men, like sinners and tax collectors. They were confident in their ability to keep the law of God. They were full of self-righteousness, believing they could stand before God based on their own good deeds and works. But Jesus came for sinners. His whole earthly ministry was about calling the weak, sick and dying and having mercy on them to show himself as the god that could save them both in this life and the one to come. He touched lepers. He ate with sinners. And he sat at the well and spoke to a woman no other Jew would have spoken to. You see, when Jesus spoke to sinners by the power of God, they heard. They were found And being found, they repented. They could do nothing else. It was a Lord depart from me for I am a sinful man moment with Peter in the boat and the miraculous catch of fish. Or like Isaiah's vision of the Lord when he says, woe is me for I am lost. He recognizes he is dead. Remember, woe is a bad thing. Go ahead. Go out and play in traffic. It's over anyway. You're dead. Isaiah knew this, and he confesses why. He says, For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. It is repentance, recognition of his unworthiness before God. Jesus had compassion on Peter and called him to follow him, and Isaiah had his lips, his very being, cleansed by the purifying a fire of coal from the altar of sacrifice. In both cases, God's work cleanses, not their work. That brings us to squirrels. Have you ever noticed they are impulsive? I once heard someone say, squirrels die by indecision. You've seen this. Squirrel on the road. Squirrel off the road. Squirrel in the road. Squirrel off the road. Dead squirrel. That would be the eternal case for us too if left to our own decision about faith in Jesus. We are like squirrels and that our sinful nature has our minds and actions all over the place, thinking and doing things we as people of God should not be doing. Where has your mind been wandering during the first part of this sermon? What is for brunch after this? I really want that new truck How am I going to work that out? The interest rates, yeah. I I wonder if my neighbor is going to be cutting her grass in her bikini again this Sunday. Or is he going to be out there without his shirt on? We are people of God, saints, baptized into Christ with His Spirit and in part of us. Yet we are so damnable at times doing and thinking things far beyond these things that would cause our mothers, our spouses, children and friends to cringe and cry out, never mind simply blush, if they knew. But they do and have done the same or similar things too. And God knows all of it, all of it. We are at the same time saints and sinners. We cling to the hope of God's promise of life and forgiveness in Christ, but then we still see a shiny object and like squirrels are distracted to sin and its fleshly allure. If you have been in Bible study, and I hope you have been the past several weeks, we are looking at a book by Kurt Marcourt called The Saving Truth, Doctrine for Lay People. Ooh, doctrine. Don't let it scare you. Some believe doctrine is too difficult for lay people. Mark Hart did not believe that. I don't believe that. You don't believe that. It's simply what you believe. One little practical piece of worldly doctrine I have taught my daughters is this. When the little gauge on the dash of the car points to the red and the thermometer, stop driving and park it. You will save the car. Believe it. Doctrine is good. And it's good to know what you believe your doctrine about Jesus and what he has done for you. Marquardt's book has a graph in it, a box. At the left, a zero to 100% scale, vertical. At the top of the box is a line from left to right, 100%, representing justification. This is our condition when we are found by our good shepherd, Jesus, in being found, we simply have faith in Him for who He is, our Savior. There is nothing we do to be found and nothing to do when being justified, that is, forgiven. We simultaneously receive faith, repent, and are forgiven 100%. We can do nothing to affect or earn forgiveness. That is Jesus' work. At the bottom begins a line that moves jaggedly from left to right to right in an upward motion. This represents sanctification. It is our becoming more Christ-like, living less like a squirrel, if you will, reacting to the sinful urges within us and more like Him with His Spirit in us. The lines go up and down and it is that way until we die as we fight the temptation to sin. We fight our flesh. That victory is won when we die and we sleep in the arms of Jesus. And in the resurrection, we will know no sin. It will not be possible for us in heaven. Justification, which has been, already been 100% accomplished by Christ, and sanctification that is ongoing in this life up until death, will meet up in the top corner of the chart, both at 100%. Boom. You see, now having been found, we still wander, sometimes for an instant, other times longer. Yet Jesus, by his word and the power of the Holy Spirit, is always gathering us back into the fold. That is what happens here, where we hear his word and where he cleanses us with his body and blood, from his altar to our lips. He reminds us who we are, having been grafted into him in baptism, and strengthens us to live out our earthly lives joyfully resisting the devil according to God's good will. Is it easy? No. Christ's work of redemption on the cross was not easy either, and we get a taste of that as we suffer in this life against sin and the devil. We carry crosses, but Christ is ever with us, seeking, finding, and bringing us to faith in the justification He has earned for us and gives freely to us. Is all God's work of redeeming us, By faith, we confess our squirrel-like wandering ways, even as our conscience burns against us and the devil mocks us, wanting us to believe we are beyond the reach of God's grace. Our sermon hymn spoke of the cure for this fear, fear like Isaiah had at seeing the Lord hosts. And the last two stanzas read thus, For your son has suffered for me, given himself to rescue me, died to save me and restore me, reconciled and set me free. Jesus' cross alone can vanquish these dark fears and soothe this anguish. Lord, on you I cast my burden, sink it in the deepest sea. Let me know your gracious pardon, cleanse me from iniquity. Let your spirit leave me never, make me only yours forever. We have this loving and gracious God who waits, is patient, calls us, redeems us, justifies us, makes us his own. And this is the great joy that we have in Christ, as we are found and he does the work that we cannot do. In Jesus' name, amen.